The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Okay, so the people from my pillow called me and said, we want to send you some pillows so you can test them. What they don't know is I am a MyPillow nutcase. I have four on my bed at home. I have two in my guest room bed, two in the other guest room bed. I have four of the mini ones in my home theater, six of them in my airplane. I actually carry two of them in my wardrobe box when I go on a road for shooting TV. I don't sleep if I'm not on a MyPillow. So they didn't need to send me samples. I had already bought them. <laughs> I wish I would have known. I wouldn't have bought them. I would have taken the free ones. If you don't have a my pillow, I think you're crazy. First of all, it stays cool all night long. No more waking up at 3 a.m. to flip to the cool side of the pillow. It totally keeps its shape. No more reshaping your pillow in the middle of the night. It comes with a money-back guarantee until March 1st. Try it. If you don't like it, you return it. And it comes with a 10-year warranty. Do you have a pillow that comes with a 10-year warranty? I don't think so. You can toss my pillow in your washer and dryer, and it's like new. Try doing that with another pillow and see what happens. And most of all, and this is what I love, it's owned by Mike Lindell, and it's made in America. It's just a great American story. Mike invented this thing, created this company in Minnesota, created this pillow, and now he's one of the fastest-growing companies in America for a reason. The darn thing is great. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the buy one, get one free special, and use the code TAFFER, and you'll get one free pillow when you buy one at regular price plus shipping. Take advantage of their best offer. Go to MyPillow.com, click on buy one, get one free special, and enter the promo code TAFFER. You will be glad you did. My pillows are awesome. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Uh, we're back. It's November 13th, and it's Veterans Day. And I want to start, even before we begin our podcast, by thanking our active military and our beloved veterans. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifices. Every time I get the chance to do anything with any of you in a charitable sense or in a restaurant industry sense, it's always an honor uh, to be in your presence. So thank you all. And uh, I wanted to make sure we started the show with that, Casey, because there's nothing more important and our veterans, our active military, and the sacrifices that they make for us every day. Absolutely. So that said, welcome to another episode of my No Excuses podcast. And it is November 13th, and uh, we got a killer show. I have Joe Coy on this week. And Joe is not only an amazing comedian, I'm sure you've all seen him, but Joe is an amazing restaurateur. And I ate at his restaurant last week, and it blew me away. It's an incredible concept. And uh, he's something else. So we have Joe Coy on this week. I want to thank my sponsors, of course, who make all this happen for us, KC. I want to thank BetDSI, MyPillow, Quicken Loans, and TrueCar. And uh, none of us would be here about any of them. And I want to congratulate every American. You know why? Why is that? Because of the amount of people that voted. How cool is oh, that? Oh, yes. Everybody came out this time. That's good. It was awesome. So, you know, when this many people go out and vote, then, you know, people can't argue with the outcome. It, you know, it's, it's our country speaking. It's really cool. And it sucks when people don't vote and their voice isn't heard. 
it's amazing when they do. So, so my compliments to everybody who went out and voted and, and uh, uh, made a difference with that vote, I'm sure. Did you vote, Casey? I did vote. I got. Uh, I asked. I asked for two stickers. She gave me one, but I just wanted two. But <laughs> I did vote. <laughs> it was a good oh, time. okay, good, good. So, so do you study a lot before you vote? You know what, John? This was the first time I I tried to read the book. But to be honest with you, it's it's a little complicated. They they really jumble up some of the propositions, so you don't know. I did the best I could, uh, but yeah, I did. I was just happy to get out there and take my time and vote. So it was nice to see people out too. I had the same problem, and I try to stay up on the issues. They had this uh, uh, Proposition 3 issue here in Nevada about whether we should open up energy uh, uh, to you know, competition or not. And when you, when you read what they said about not doing it, it made a lot of sense. You know, Okay, I'm in. I'm not going to do it. And then you read what they write about doing it, and you say, oh, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, I'm going to do it. And uh, it almost seems like you take the position of the last one you read. <laughs> But but it's tough because you're right. They position their arguments so well that that it, it's difficult to find a negative in their arguments, even when they're arguing for something that, in fact, we don't like. So uh, we got to be careful, buddy. The good news is we don't have to deal with that for another two years, do we? Nope. Mm-mm. So uh, fires in California. I've been just riveted to my computer. A lot of my friends have been seriously damaged. I have friends that have lost their homes and their businesses. They've lost literally everything. And, you know, I've learned through the hurricane work that I've done uh, uh, and the flood work that I've done, even on Bar Rescue and personally, that when you lose your home and your business, when you lose both, that's the most devastating of all because you lose your cash flow at the same time that you've lost all your possessions. And in the case of Paradise, California, there's a lot of local business owners that have lost literally everything. So as Americans, we have to understand the depth of suffering. Communities are gone, gone. Uh, 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 Thousands of buildings are gone. Businesses are gone. Uh, uh, We have to, as Americans, understand the depth of a problem like this, and we have to find a way to help. So please go online. Find out what you can do to help. Uh, uh, get some of these people places where they can stay and help them pull their lives together. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And it's not ending, Casey. It's going on right now as we talk. And I'm sitting here in Vegas. You're in Los Angeles now, Casey. Yeah. Could you smell the fire this morning on your way to work? Oh, yeah. It, it's it, You can smell it here. And then where I live, about 40 miles east, you can smell it over there, too. It's everywhere. Wow. Are there ashes on the cars and a- such? Ashes on the cars. And they said uh, they reported that the campfire... Uh, has destroyed uh, about 95% of Paradise, California. It's gone. It's gone. It's just, and it's still going. Yep. Mm-hmm. And how are the winds today? Um, you know, it's, it's a little calm, but it's picking up, though. And so they, they just raised the fire warning again, and you see trucks on the streets everywhere, and it's a little chaotic. Yeah, I bet it is. Well, for all of us around the country, let's just please pay notice to this, and, and let's try to do what we can to help and, and even be vocal online to bring others' attention to it. Uh, There's a lot of suffering going on now in California. So I was looking at some articles today, and I found something that was really fascinating to me. Now, a lot of us go through airports, right? Mm -hmm. Go through airports. We go through TSA. We use the bathrooms in airports. We sit on planes. We use the trays. Uh, uh, uh. Where do you think the most viruses in an airport are actually located? What is the one surface that if you touched has the greatest statistical likelihood of you having a, 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 a bacterial or virus. 
on it. <laughs> I'd love to. So I almost don't want to give you the answer because I think I want to make people guess. Because I'm sure people say things like toilet seats, the doorknob in the bathroom, the paper towel dispenser in the bathroom. What would you guess, Casey? You know, I recently flew, John, and I, I touched a, um, what is that? The, the armrest in between was sticky. And I don't know what it was sticky with. <laughs> so I feel like but, the, the armrest. So that sticky was now on you. Yes. <laughs> and, then with, and then when you scratched your head, that sticky was now on your hair. And I had a rash. Put your head in your pocket, and it's now in your pocket, and that's what we call cross-contamination. The most infected thing in an airport, believe it or not, is the bin on the TSA line. No. And nobody would think about that. So that bin on the TSA line is touched by everyone. Think about it, case everybody touches that bin. And they recycle it and recycle it and recycle it. By the end of the day, it's been touched by thousands and thousands of people. Now, we don't think about that. We think about bathrooms and and tray tables and and armrests. So we got to either wear a glove, use a tissue, use a hand sanitizer after. But be on the alert. Those bins at the TSA lines are not healthy. And the statistics are unbelievable. So they look for, for, for... Viruses on 90 surfaces in an airport, 90 different surfaces, and that was number one. So I think we got to carry a little hand sanitizer or a wipe, but if we touch those bins uh, uh, and then we touch our kids or we touch each other, then uh, we got a problem. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Okay, so there's an Indian airline, and the Indian authorities say Jet Airways that the crew forgot to pressurize the cabin. This is a fascinating story. So the crew forgot to pressurize the cabin. The plane takes off, crosses its 22,000 or whatever altitude, and now the passenger's nose starts bleeding. The oxygen masks fall down, and it becomes a real crisis. They eventually realized what they were doing, and they brought the plane down, and they put the pressure on, and they got themselves out of it. But, you know, that's an interesting thing. And you think to yourself, how does something like that happen that they forgot to pressurize the cabin. KC, pilots don't forget. No. They have checklists. That seems that's like that's the is. one thing you're supposed to do. <laughs> and, and you must complete your checklist. And look, I own an airplane, and I have a flight crew that works for me. We have a hangar and a company flight office, and, and we run a flight operation. And you know, at 18,000 feet, there's a checklist that pilots go through. Before they take off, there's a checklist that pilots go through. If they forgot to pressurize the cabin, KC, that tells me they forgot to do the checklist, not just that one item. And that's horrifying. So I think those guys should be fired instantly. Uh, uh, any pilot who bypasses or doesn't do a checklist or an item on it uh, should never be allowed to fly again. Yeah. There's no mistakes at 40,000 feet, buddy. No. <laughs> and uh, so how about this? Some California students made some cookies to bring to school. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty good, and they, they made, you know, nice, they look like really nice cookies. And then after everybody ate the cookies, they told the students that they put their grandparents' cremated ashes in the recipe. No. So now imagine this. Your kid's in school, or you're in school, you eat this cookie, and then you find out no. that, that the kid's grandparents' cremated ashes are in the cookie. Oh, my gosh. So, first of all, is that a crime? Yes. According to the police, they said no. That it's, which is shocking to me, and they told the high school to deal with it as they like. But what about the parents of these kids who <laughs> ate these cremated ashes? You'd think there'd be some type of 
absolute outrage over that. But apparently nothing happened to the kids and the school didn't do much about it. And I just guess they're not going to do that again. Wow. <laughs> I'd be pretty pissed, I got to tell you. All right. So here is, you know, I love my no excuses thing in my book. Don't bullshit yourself or the excuses that are holding you back. I just want everybody to know if you got a kid who says he can't find a job, if you know anybody who says they can't find a job, fast food restaurants are now struggling to find people. They're struggling so hard that, listen to this, companies like McDonald's now have career guidance programs. If you're a young kid and you get a job at McDonald's, they have career counseling to help you get to the next level of your career. Not in McDonald's. If you want to be a doctor, they'll provide you with the career counseling to become a doctor. They've increased their tuition programs. They've reduced the amount of time that you have to work there to access a tuition program. Fast food restaurants are throwing benefits on like crazy trying to get employees, and they can't. So what they're doing is they're hiring seniors at a great rate. So they're actually approaching churches and places where senior citizens are, and and they're they're campaigning to get senior citizens to work in their restaurants because young people aren't doing it. But the benefits are really worth it today if you're a young kid and you want to get a job, a high school or in college or summer job. So if any young person says, I can't find a job right now, straight out, know it. They're full of shit. <laughs> Bust them <laughs> and send them out to get a job in a fast food restaurant. Maybe they'll get some career counseling on top of it. But uh, to suggest that there aren't jobs out there is just uh, uh, insane because there are. There's a lot of them out there. So. Alec Baldwin. Now, in all honesty, I must say, I am not a fan of Alec Baldwin. I just don't think the guy is very nice. And, and you know, when I watch him uh, uh, in interactions with people, I mean, he's a guy who's pretty quick to curse someone out, pretty quick to get angry. He's the kind of guy who strikes me as being angry maybe sooner than he needs to be. Mm-hmm. Fair? Yeah, yeah. He has a hot temper, for sure. Yeah, he's got a hot temper. Nicely said, Casey. Maybe he's got a, a, a very hot temper. But in any event, you know, he had this incident in New York last week where he got into an argument over a parking space. And apparently, allegedly, uh, uh, he got arrested for belting somebody in the mouth. And uh, I'm a member of the Friars Club in New York. Now, the Friars Club in New York is a very, very special club of all show business people. And it was originally created by people like Milton Berle. And... All sorts of very famous comedians like Whoopi Goldberg and Billy Crystal, uh, 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 Jeffrey Ross. A lot of them belong to the Friars Club, and it's a private club. And as a member, I go in, I have dinner, I go to events there, etc. Well, Billy Crystal has a room in a Friars Club called the Billy Crystal Bar. And it was a award ceremony for Billy Crystal at the Friars Club last week. A- and Alec Baldwin was supposed to speak at the event along with Robert De Niro, Katie Couric, and Jimmy Fallon, who's also a very, very active friar, and so is De Niro. Uh, 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 But Baldwin's team, he backed out of the event. So he didn't go. He didn't honor Billy Crystal. He didn't uh, 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 fulfill his commitment and responsibilities to the Friars Club. And my guess is his singular reason for doing it is because he's embarrassed right now. Because not only was he arrested for being an asshole, but his show the next week got slipped out of its time slot and dropped in 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 like the worst time slot you can get in television, which I believe is now Saturday. So Baldwin got a triple whammy by his own actions, Uh, got himself in trouble, got his television show moved for low ratings. 
And he didn't go to an event, not because he's in a hospital bed, not because he's out of town, but because he was embarrassed. What do you think about that, Casey? You, you know, I have a question for you. When, when television networks move shows, what do the talent, like, what are you thinking? That, you know, the talent, are you saying it's a bad thing? Is it always a good thing? It's, how do you know? Well, it depends upon where they move it to. Now, Bar Rescue is on Sundays, as you well know. Sundays is a very tough day to be on television. I got Walking Dead against me, shows like Ray Donovan, Homeland, uh, a lot of shows, football, right, yeah. against me. So it's a very competitive night. So there are certain nights of the week, Monday through Friday, when people watch more television. They watch less on the weekend. So it isn't that they move you. It's where they move you that matters. Uh, you know, if they move you to a Tuesday night, which is a prime night at 8 o'clock, well, that's pretty good. If they move you to 1 in the morning on Saturday <laughs> night, Casey, not so good. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to see here where his show got moved to. Where did he and... Apparently, his show got moved to uh, out of its Sunday night time slot into the Saturday berth. So Sunday's a good night to have. He's now on Saturday night, which is one of the least viewed nights on television. And that's an insult. They put shows on Saturday night that can't generate an audience or can't generate advertising revenues. And my guess is people don't not like watching an asshole. And sorry, <laughs> that's what he is. So... In life, there's consequences. You know, life isn't a coincidence. Life is a consequence. And the way we treat people, our public personas matter. Now, Casey, I'm not viewed as, as necessarily the most unaggressive guy in the world. I'm not a pushover. I stick up for myself. Look, I curse people out on television all the time, more than Alec Baldwin does. <laughs> I insult people on television more than Alec Baldwin does. Right? I have far more confrontations uh, uh, than Alec Baldwin does on television. But yet people don't think I'm an asshole. They think he is. So, you know, there's a difference. What we do and who we are can be two different things. You see, you can be a good guy acting like an asshole at the moment. Or you can just be an asshole. <laughs> and I'd like to think I'm a good guy who acts like an asshole when I have to. I'm not just inherently an asshole all the time. So, you know, there's a lot to learn from the actions of others. Sometimes we learn what we want to be. Sometimes we learn what we don't want to be. So next week is my last show from Las Vegas. I'm heading to Puerto Rico. I'm starting to shoot my new television show for Paramount. We're going to do six episodes in Puerto Rico uh, in the end of November and throughout December. I'm pretty excited about it. It's a new relationship-driven show. I can't tell everybody what the name is, but it's a really big challenge for me. I'm pretty darn excited about it. So during the month of December, my podcast is going to be coming to you from the island of Puerto Rico, which I'm pretty darn excited about. So I'm going to be drinking some rum, no question about that, some empanadas, and having some fun down in Puerto Rico down there. And, uh, Casey, life has been pretty good here in, in uh, uh, Vegas. Our consulting group just uh, uh, took on four or five major projects. We're now doing a big resort in Tennessee. We just opened up a, a restaurant test facility in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, for me to be home for these weeks and, and be involved in these projects that aren't TV projects, they're just from our consulting group, is really pretty amazing. And it's one thing to help people on TV, but in our consulting group, when we get to help people and go to their projects and be involved and, and, you know, see their numbers and see them grow, it's a really, really exciting thing. And That's what I miss when I'm not here in Vegas, Casey, is that connection with all the consulting clients and all the other projects that we do. And I'm going to be gone for a month in Puerto Rico. 
shooting my new show, and I'll be missing all the team here. But it is Puerto so, Rico, though, John. It's Puerto Rico. <laughs> oh, it is Puerto Rico. And you know my feelings about Puerto Rico. And, yes. and from Operation Puerto Rico, uh, we were all so touched from being down there that when we went to make this new show, we decided we were going to shoot it from a resort. And we wanted the show to be beautiful. So we chose to, to either go to Hawaii or Puerto Rico. And uh, we chose to go to Puerto Rico for just that reason, Casey. They still need us down there. Mm-hmm. And they still need some help. And uh, it's a lesson to learn. Look at what's going on in California. A year from now, that's not going to be over. A year later, Puerto Rico isn't over either. There's still a crisis down there that needs to be managed. And boy, I'm pretty excited about my guest this week. So Kojoy is not only, honestly, one of my favorite comedians. I mean, the guy just makes me laugh. But whenever anybody can manage their entertainment life and their professional life and get into the restaurant business or the bar business, that's really meaningful to me because I struggle with all of that in my life between the consulting work, the businesses that we own, and the media work. Well, Joe Coy obviously doesn't mess with it as much as I do. He has an amazing restaurant and is hugely successful. And I want to talk to him about how the heck he got there. You know, to think that somebody comes across the ocean, comes to America, positions themselves as a comedian and an award-winning restaurateur, that's some pretty cool stuff. You agree, KC? Yeah, yeah, it's big. It's big. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, and he's a master. His restaurant I ate there just two days ago is absolutely incredible. So when we come back, we'll be with Joe Coy. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, another week of NFL and NCAA football is gone, and you've learned a lot more than you knew the week before. So why don't you use some of that pigskin knowledge and take it to the bank with betdsi.com. BetDSI is celebrating 20 years online, and they've built an impeccable reputation for great service and fast payment of your winnings. And to help you get started with some extra bang for your buck, BetDSI is offering double your money on your first deposit. That's right. Deposit your money, and they'll double it up to $2,500 for free. That's double your money right from the get-go. When it comes to football, BetDSI has every wage you could ever imagine. If it's happening, BetDSI will put a line on. You can bet on the NFL, NCAA football, MLB, NBA, UFC, esports, NHL, and other global sports, and even bet on politics, celebrities, and reality shows for that matter. You can also bet on games while they're playing with BetDSI's live betting. So join BetDSI today using promo code TAFFER101, and you've already won by doubling your bankroll right out of the gate. So use promo code 101 to get in the action and get paid. Join BetDSI today. Support for my No Excuses podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credits to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if the rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if the rates have gone down, you get to keep that new lower rate. 
Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. So I went, and I didn't even know we were going to be talking today. Just by coincidence, Wait a minute. Went. You, went to my, you went to my restaurant? I did, Wednesday. Oh, you should have told me. I would have taken care of you. That's okay, buddy. They took great care of me. But I got to tell you, I'm a restaurant concept guy. Joe, I, I loved it, man. I love oh, thank you. everything about it, from the Japanese fondue style that you've created. The sauces were unbelievable. The preparation, the service. If anybody hasn't been to your restaurant, they should. It's really unique. Oh, man, thank you so much. That means a lot, dude. Nah. Thank you. That was that was a, a passion project of mine, and you know, I, I bought it 100%. You know, I, I bought in as a, a silent partner, and then I eventually just took it over, and and now it's kind of like, you know, that's my thing now. My, my sister and I run it, and, and we love it. We're constantly trying to think of new things for it. Well, I got to tell you, buddy, this is what I do for a living. A place was spotless, ran great. The food was right on the money. The staff <laughs> yes. was outstanding. It was a freaking home run, buddy. Really, Thank really you. well done. Really well done. Oh, I can't wait to tell the staff that, man. Thank yeah, you. My pleasure. I'll be back soon. So, you know, I love your story. Because, uh, Thank you. Uh, you know, you were born a completely different person, sort of, than you became in your evolution of life. Thank you. Did you always know you were funny? Yeah, I knew right away I was funny. I, I knew right when, uh, right when I knew what a comedian was, which was right around 11 years old. I, I have to say 11 or, yeah, about 10 or 11. I knew that's, that's what I was going to be when I grew up. Wow. Right away. So, so uh, uh, I want to talk about your upbringing for a second. So, so you're an Air Force guy, right? You're, you're, uh, yep. So you came up in a military home, which is a pretty conservative kind of home to grow up in, right? Yeah. Yep. So, so you have a pretty conservative upbringing. You, you grow up, you move to Seattle, then you move to Vegas, and you went to UNLV, right? I went to UNLV for about six, seven months. And what did you study? <laughs> Uh, you know, the basics, you know, just whatever it was that you had to take the electives and stuff like that. Uh, I think my goal was to do something with sports. You know what I mean? I was in the sports. So I don't know. I was thinking about maybe sports medicine. Then I started getting into communications and, you know, then I took speech classes. I was like, whatever could help me uh, pursue stand up, you know, indirectly. I didn't want my mom to know that that was going to be my number one goal. So. Ah. And that's how it all 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 happened, yeah. But so it was but, a cover man, scheme. Man, I'll tell you what. So you went, it was basically a cover scheme, yeah. So you went to college. She's thinking that you're learning, you know, setting yourself up with, with your business degrees, and the entire time you you knew you wanted to be a comedian. Oh yeah, I, I knew I knew right when I got to Vegas because I was already calling comedy clubs and pretending to be a comic and trying to get like uh, stage time or or warm up act time or you know what I mean, do do stuff like that or at least trying to get a job inside a comedy club and never seemed to work, especially since I was 18, you know? So, so I found myself lying a lot. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I would make up, uh, you know, make up, uh, uh, like a resume telling them who I've opened for and stuff like that. But I, I didn't open for anybody at that time. <laughs> That's funny. Producers do that in Hollywood, but the half of them, the only thing they ever produced was a business card. You know what I mean? They never produced a damn thing. <laughs> so, so yeah. They bullshit us every day. <laughs> Yeah. 
So, <laughs> so you left UNLV, and how soon after that was your first comedy gig? Uh, about, or before it? It took about a year. It took about a year to finally get uh, – well, not that long. About Yeah, about close to a year. And then uh, I got on to this competition called uh, – I think it was called The Biggest Fool – and it was a comedy competition for local comics. And uh, I thought in my head I was going to crush it. Man, I, I, I ate it so bad, man. It was the, one of the worst times of my life. <laughs> wow. So you went out there. You thought you were going to hit yeah. a home run and, 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 and you completely bombed? Oh, bombed so bad, man. It was so bad, yeah. So, so it, what did you do after that? Not good. Did you reevaluate uh, if you wanted to be a comedian? How hard did that hit you? You know, I knew – I saw an interview with uh, Eddie Murphy and he, he said that he bombed – like his first eight or nine times, you know, and, and and he and one thing that he said he just always just loved getting on stage and just keep trying, you know, and so I knew that you know if Eddie could bomb, then I can bomb, you know, right. that's that was my whole mentality. I was like, well, shoot, you know, bombing is what you're supposed to do. So I just had to, you know, it, you had to build up that strength and that courage again, man. It, it, it's hard, man, to go up in front of people, but to and get bomb and then like that. Yeah. Yeah. To get rejected as hard as that. And then to go back home and then build up that strength and courage to go do it again, knowing that that's probably going to be the same result again. So how different was rough. the show the next time? Oh, I bombed again. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I, kept, <laughs> I kept bombing. I mean, under different names and different aliases. Like I, I never used uh, my real name and smart. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, but and then, uh, you know, and then I started getting, uh, you know, coffee houses and that's where it all started taking off for me were the coffee houses. So for you, and, and, and I've watched you, uh, uh, Joe, you're really funny, buddy. And I was watching a bunch of Thank YouTube you. videos today. You are just a funny, but you talk so much about the simplicities of life and make them funny. Right? Oh, thank so you. You're big about looking at all the things around you and, and doing very relatable comedy. Was there some point between those bomb shows and you becoming successful when you started to become maybe more authentic to yourself? Yeah, I think what it was, you know, they always say this when you first start doing stand-up that, uh, you know, you'll find your voice in 10 years. And, and when you first start stand-up, you don't know what that means. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. what are you talking about? I know my voice now. Like, you're very hard-headed. But after you put in your licks and your times and your and you lick your wounds and and you, you've said it, you, you bombed enough and said a bunch of dumb shit. You know what yeah. I mean? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And you start weeding through your, your, your little, uh, your little, uh, diary of stuff that you've done. Then you start to weed it out and realize, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to be talking about. Yeah. I get it now. And that's usually right around 10 years. And, and they're right. Every comic that starts off, you know, I, you know, I heard it and and I want everyone else to hear it. See me in 10 years, because in 10 years, you're going to really, really know what you want to talk about. And once you really know what you want to talk about, then that's when comedy really starts for you, you know? Yeah, you're unbelievably authentic, though. You're just you up there. Oh, thank you, man. I, I really, you know, one of the things that I, I, I love about stand-up is being able to be vulnerable and, and just tell the truth, because the audience knows when you're telling the truth. Right. I mean, they'll laugh with you, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll love who doesn't like to laugh, but they also know when it's not real and when they know it's fake, you know? And I love that about stand up. You know, if you put yourself out there and be very, you know, vulnerable and, 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 and let them know your story, people love to reach 
and, and grab a hold of that because then they identify because you're talking about something that they want to say too sometimes. Yeah. Or wish they could. You know, or wish they could. Wish they could. Yeah. So what they do is they relate to you and then, and then sometimes it makes them feel good. Like, holy shit, he's laughing about it. Then I can laugh about it, you know? Yeah. So that's when, always been kind of like my thing, man. When I used to watch stand-up, I used to love watching the storytellers. I used to love watching the, you know, the kid stories or the the yeah. the mom and dad stories. I just got off on that. I just I found it more relatable and interesting. So uh, uh, in the later years of his life, Buddy Hackett was one of my dearest friends, and I sat on Buddy a, Hackett. Buddy Hackett was one of my dearest friends. I sat on a board oh. of his charity, and he and I were very close in the later years of his life. And he was to me a great storyteller, comedian. You know, he he could drive you into yeah. a story. But you know, he was an innovator, very much like you are. But you know, it's interesting. I found an article. Nine things to know about comedian Joe Coy, including his love for Drake and football. So the first one you told me, Eddie Murphy changed your life, right? Taught Hands you, down. Taught you that you can get beat up and still stand up and do it again. Yeah. There's only one recording artist in the entire world who moves you? Yes. And that's Drake, interestingly. <laughs> right? I mean, that that's kind of, it's kind of like new. I think that question was like, who's... Who who now uh, that I'm interested in? I think that was what the question was. Like, what am I listening to now? And I'm like, you know, my son, you know, I love the hip hop and R&B stuff. But like when I was 15, there were so many artists that I, I enjoyed listening to. Whereas now, you know, I, I kind of just gravitate towards Drake. That's about the only one that's really moving me right now. As well, you also don't have a lot of time. You don't have a lot of time to yeah. listen to music like you used to. I don't. I really don't. And then I love your third one. Koi doesn't have to look far for inspiration. Your 15-year-old son takes care of it for you. <laughs> Hands down. Hands down, man. That's funny. That kid, That kid. Uh, he, he doesn't know it, but he's writing everything for me, and I love it. I and, just follow him with a pen and a pad, and I'm good to go. And I used to love watching you on Chelsea lately. As a matter of fact, Sarah Colon is a very dear friend of mine. Oh, I love her. And Sarah did recon on a bar rescue episode with me, which was a freaking blast. And you're a Seahawks oh. fan. She was with her, her then fiance, uh, John, oh. who I believe was a quarterback yeah. for the Seahawks, if I'm not mistaken. No, he's a he's a he's a place he's a kicker and also a placeholder. But you could say quarterback because he saved the game uh, when he threw that pass, man. I, I, I mean, that's a legendary yeah. pass, man. Man, that was one of my favorite games ever. That was one of the and greatest he's always plays of all be time. Legend. Oh, I mean, you should build a statue of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to hang out with him during a, a friend of We have a mutual friend that got married, Michael Cox, uh, and uh, he was actually the talent booker for Chelsea lately. And uh, they sat us with him at their table, and all. I, I think everybody just kept asking him questions about football and stuff. But man, just hearing those stories come from him was just a that was a highlight. You know, it's yeah. one thing to watch it on TV, but. To actually hear the inside scoop uh, coming from a real football player, yeah. it just made it that much more fun. Yeah, I used to be on the advisory board of the NFL, and I'm one of the creators of the Sunday Ticket. Oh my God! And that's one. Of what my don't you do? But uh, uh, I used to love being close to football. You know, the unique thing about football is the fact that there's only 17 games a year. That's what makes it special. And you know you look yeah. at, and and people don't necessarily realize that. You know, you look at hockey 80 games a year. You look at basketball, God knows how many games a year. Baseball 160 whatever games a year. You know, when there's only 17, 18 games a year, every play is important. Every minute every is play. important. And it's the greatest asset that football has is yep. the limited uh nature of their play. 
and uh, it's probably what makes them as successful as they are. I love this. That's one. so crazy you said that. That's another thing about football too is life seems to move really fast during football season, and then it all slows down when baseball season starts. Yeah, because I mean we're already almost done with the season. I think we're nine games in. We only have eight more games left. Yeah. So you're a Vegas you know, guy. And, you spend a lot of time. Here. Oh yeah. So what do you think of the? I gold? have a house there. What do you think of the Golden uh, Knights phenomena? I'm so excited, and um, you know, and 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 like I said, I I I moved to Vegas in '89. So if you get, I don't know if you're from Vegas, but but in '89 there was nothing there. Yep. You know, the Stardust was still there, the Riviera was yep. still there, the Dunes yep. was still there. You know, the Dunes is where the Bellagio is. Yep. And you know, I saw all those before there How was about an the MGM Holiday Grand Casino. Remember the Holiday the Inn? Holiday <laughs> Inn. <laughs> Which is where City the, Center. The Hacienda. Yes. Uh, the MGM used to be this place called the the oh my god the Marriott uh, the Marriott or something like that. It was uh, the Meridian or something like yes, that. I mean, yes. it was just yeah. And like that's the time I lived there. The you know? San and Remo. Steve Winbrook. San Remo with the Hooters now. <laughs> yep. Uh, man, uh, Steve Wynn was the first one to break ground. Yeah. And uh, and actually build a five hundred million dollar hotel resort. We all thought that that was going to flop because it was too much money to make. And he changed. The world. And uh, and one thing that we could not understand is why we couldn't get a professional team. Like we kept begging for a professional team and. And uh, the city just would not – oh, no, the leagues would not l- allow it. They laughed and at us. Crying. Yeah, they laughed at us. Like, what are you talking about? Well, we proved them and wrong. And they gave us we, the Golden Knights, man. Because we not only uh, sold our season tickets for the Knights, uh, Raiders season tickets are selling really well as well. So you know, oh we're God, proving so that these teams work here. Next, I, I hear the buzz internally that there's a baseball stadium coming down. Uh, uh, oh, come on. Uh, Give us that baseball stadium. Yeah. So, so I can't wait. When I look at all the stuff that you've done, Joe, I mean, from Chelsea to the Tonight Show to your Comedy Central specials, and even Chris Hardwick, who you've done with Midnight, who's a dear friend. He's a great guy. And then working with Adam. What haven't you done yes. that you really want to? Well, I think now, you know, I produced that special myself, right? Yep. I, I, I paid for that 100%. So, I mean, God bless Netflix for giving it to me, but also God bless Netflix for saying no to me. You know, when they said no to me in 2015, I, I could have done one thing. I could have I just sat there and cry and complain about why other people got it over me and and, to, and and tell the world why they didn't deserve it and why I deserve it. Or I can produce it myself and to them and show them why I should have said yes. And that's what I did. And, and thank God they bought it from me because my son was not going to go to college. I spent all of the money, man. All wow. of it. So. Yeah. People don't and, and understand. I, People sometimes don't understand Joe, the entrepreneurial nature of what we do for a living. You know, no, they don't. We invest dollars, time, you know, on creative projects, and you know, to one person yes. it's great, but to the guy who's going to buy it, he hates it. So, I mean, exactly. we're selling a subjective product that that is exactly. really, and I've been through the same thing, and I produce my show as well, and have taken huge risks over the years, and and mm-hmm. it's it is classic entrepreneurialism. But you got to believe in yourself. Right? Oh my God, one hundred percent. I love you for saying that. So, so, you know, especially coming from you, man. It, it's just cool to, you know, 
share this with you because you know what I mean? You understand. And there's a lot of people that just don't understand it or, or get it. What you know, they don't... think that what we do is handed to us or, or we just happen to be walking around the street and a network was like, oh, we're going to give you this show. And it's like, no, that's not what happened, man. Well, that's think of what, we just, what think of we just talked about 10 years to get good at it. And then yep. even after those 10 years of getting good at it, you still got to put your ass on the line, invest your yeah. own money, you know, sort of yeah. stand there with your pants down, so to speak, exposing yep. yourself and hoping that it works. But there's something I read in your bio that was really powerful that says everything about you. So after performing at the MGM Grand Las Vegas, you yeah. rented the Hunt Ridge Theater yourself <laughs> yeah. and yeah. went door to door selling tickets for your comedy show. You worked 100%. Your, you worked your freaking ass off, man. <laughs> I did. You know why I did that is I got this gig to open for a headliner. The, the, the booker for uh, – I still remember his name. His name is Kevin Kearney. He used to book the MGM Catch a Rising Star. And he saw me at like some nightclub doing an open mic. And he was like, hey, come to the MGM. You're going to open for this headliner. He gave me a stack of two-for-one tickets. I handed it out to all my friends. And I noticed that everyone I handed it out to was coming to see me. Like no one was there for the headliner. Everyone was there to see me. Wow. And I was like, well, I'm not getting paid for this. <laughs> but yet everyone here is for me. So I was like, if I can hand out these two-for-ones, well, then I can do it at my own theater. And, and that's what I did. I, I gambled and, and decided not to work for MGM anymore. And I rented out a theater myself and started handing out two-for-ones for my own show. Wow. And I was selling them out, man. There's a lesson to be learned from this. You know, people want to be entrepreneurs. They want to start in life and everything. The greatest thing in the world that you could ever invest in, Joe, is yourself. Exactly. Oh, my God. Thank so, you. So, so Preach what, it. What you did is exactly what I do. You know, I'm exactly. not going to invest in someone else. I'm going to invest in me. And everybody listening should remember that. You know, you yes. invest in yourself first. You did it yep. in those 10 years that you dedicated to comedy. You did it when you licked your wounds after you bombed. You, yep. you reinvested and reinvested and reinvested. And now you got that college money for your son, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do, man. He's good to go now. <laughs> Thank so, God, though. Thank so God. With all your comedy work, you have a love for the restaurant business. That's interesting. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's always been a passion of mine. I've always been a foodie. I, I, I don't drink. You know, I'm not that guy that's like at the end of the show, let's go to the bar and yep. and tank it up. I, I've always been that guy that if I go to a different city, I want to know what the city likes to eat. You know what I mean? What's the cool restaurant that everyone talks about in town? Let me go there. You know, I, I just enjoy food culture and conversation so i'm the same way i don't want to yeah. go where the tourists go i want to go where the locals are you know yeah when, when i go to china and i get to go to asia that's the greatest of all i want to go to places where stuff hangs on hooks yes <laughs> 100 where your meal was on a hook five minutes ago <laughs> yes and now it's on a beautiful platter and it's displayed perfectly yes but so, just minutes ago it was hanging on a hook underneath right. a light that's right <laughs> I love it. So, so uh, do you have greater aspirations now for the restaurant business? Are you looking to take that part of your life forward? Yeah, I want to represent my culture. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean I want to figure out a way that I can do something with you know Filipino cuisine and really get it out there and, uh, and maybe invest in something like that. 
Wow. You know, Get that out there. Years ago when I was a consultant, uh, I consulted to, to Stubik Bay, the base in the Philippines. Yes. I know exactly where you're talking and, about, and, the naval I, base. Yes, the naval base. And I flew there because I did a lot of work for the Navy. I flew there and I created all their officers clubs. I'm guessing this is around 89, 90, something like that. What? That's and then, so gangster. And then after putting all their nightclubs and everything together, the volcano happened. And, and when a volcano happened, it dumped five, six feet of ash on top of all the buildings, and then it yep. rained for three days. And the wow. ash filled up with water, and the weight of it collapsed every building on the base. Unbelievable. So about three months after we built all the clubs, they all literally caved in, and we went back a few months later to build them a second time. And what was interesting is the first time I went, we just took civilian vehicles around the street and everything. The second time I went, all the political uproar started, and we had to have government escorts to and from the base. And, but wow. I'll, but I'll never forget going to that base after, after that, that volcano and looking at all these buildings collapse. I'd never seen anything like that before. That's crazy. Can I ask you a question, though? Didn't that happen before the volcano erupted, the political uprising? I don't know. I like, just, was it? Well, maybe, because oh, okay, we went there to put it together first time, and yeah. there wasn't any issues the first time we went there. The second wow. time we went back, there, there was... There was issues. Oh, yeah. We had uh, you know military escorts going from the airport to the base, and it, wow. was, it was an amazing time. But I'll never That's forget, crazy. there was freaking ash everywhere. It yeah, it was bad bad scene. So, are you going to stay with your, your Japanese uh, 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 concept? Are you going to look... Oh, yeah, yeah. Like That's always going to be there. That's That was my son's first cuisine that he loved to go out to eat. So, you know, just getting a kid that's five years old to go out and eat with you is one thing that you know that that's a task if yeah. it's not mcdonald's they don't want it right yeah so my son's favorite thing to eat was shabu shabu japanese mm. shabu shabu yep. and he loved it he loved you know boiling the meat himself and eating it with the sauces he loved all that so it, it was kind of like it was weird that that opportunity fell in my hand but once it did i was like oh plus it's right by my house in summerlin mm. my mom lives out there so i was just like yeah i'll invest it was a small investment and then what three years later now i owned it 100 percent. i bought the guy out well i live in so. summerlin as well so so we're oh neighbors. what i do where do you live i, I got live a place in out there i live in summerlin mountain trails yeah, I live in Ridges. So anyway, I want to plug your restaurant. We've got to hang out. we got to. So I want to take care of this because it's important to me. You have a great restaurant. And I want Thank everybody you. to know, where is it located in Vegas? Where are there others? How can people find your restaurant? What website can they go to? Because if you're listening to me, you really want to experience Joe's restaurant. Oh, man. Thank you so much. It's 9440 West Sahara. It's it's Just take it towards Summerlin, and it's on the corner of Fort Apache and uh, – uh, uh, Sahara Boulevard. You can't miss it. That's really special. And you have any oh, it's so good. You have any tours now or anything that you're working on? Uh, the tour that I'm on right now currently is Break the Mold. Uh, I just sold out the Beacon Theater twice, man, in the same uh, night, man. Congratulations. And I, I just, yeah, I just flew back from that right now. That's why I'm so tired right now. Wow. And, uh, and then uh, I tape another Netflix special in Hawaii in two weeks. So we're doing it again. Uh, that's fantastic. Round two, man. Uh, congratulations, buddy. I'm starting my new show, which is a, a relationship-based rescue show. And I start that's shooting so cool. it in Puerto Rico in two weeks. And Dude, you're so cool, man. Uh, I love your you. show, by the way. So the first thing about the show is we've never shot a pilot, so we just came up with the idea. The network, what? The network took six episodes, so we're going to go down there. We're going to figure the sucker out. <laughs> 
That's so cool, man. Are they are they behind it? One hundred percent. They're funding yeah. it and everything. Yeah, oh yeah, it's my network, Paramount. So so it's a treatment they sort of created for me, and we're gonna God, go I love you. figure it out together. But it's fun because it's a new experience for me. You know, it's different than yeah. Rescue, and we get to work out a new show, and no different than you trying out new new material or in a new format. It's exciting. Yeah, man, that's awesome, man. Congratulations. That's that's uh, cool when you can do that, sell it on an idea. Yeah. Yeah, how many times have we walked into the pitch room, huh? Oh boy, too many times. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be there tomorrow in LA. But Joe, oh, that's awesome. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can go. Hey, you know, my my favorite thing is uh, just type in Joe Coy, J O K O Y. It'll take you to everything. But you know, that's my Facebook. That's my my website, JoeCoy.com. But you know, I'm always on Instagram. That's my favorite too. Good so thing. at Joe Coy, J O K O Y. Good thing your name isn't Smith. That would just completely screw that whole premise <laughs> up, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Joe, this has been a blast, buddy. Let's get together and, and have some lunch one of these days soon. I'm gonna hold you to this. Absolutely, it's a deal, buddy. And I love I'd, you, man. Thank I'd you. I'd love to come see your show. Thanks for having you. You know, there's a lesson to be learned in this. You know, look at what Joe has done. He started in college, chased his career. Bombed, bombed, bombed again, licked his wounds, get up, fought it, then became entrepreneurial, invested in himself, bought theaters, sold tickets, built a brand. And the moral of the story is, had you not invested in yourself, none of this would have happened, Joe. Man, thank you. I appreciate that. And that's the lesson that that I want everybody to take away from this, because they can do it too, can't they? Yeah, anyone can do it. You bet. I swear to God, as long as you believe in it, man, put it in your heart. Go with your heart, always. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Be passionate. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. If you're looking to buy a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP. You might even know what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? The same goes for invoice, list price, and dealer price. It's enough to confuse anyone. All you're really looking for is a price that actually means something. Introducing true price from true car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you even get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of your home. And how do you know if your true price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. KC, my Shut favorite part down. of the show. So this is our listener call-in part. And uh, I'll talk to anyone about just about anything. So if you'd like to be on the show and talk to me, just send me an email to podcast at johntaffer.com. That's podcast at johntaffer.com. And you could be on the show with me, too. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm actually pretty good. How are you, sir? Good. I, uh, I see you're in California. Hopefully you're not near any of the fires and, and everything is normal and stable where you live. Oh, we're, we're actually in the exact center of the state, so they're way up to the north and way down to the south from us. Thank God. So uh, uh, you're escaping this. Good for you. And I hear you're a cigar guy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I am. I, I was fortunate enough to hear you speak at uh, our trade show a couple of years ago, and uh, really wanted to get more, and by then, of course, we were uh, following you on Bar Rescue and pretty much anywhere else I could find, because we're always looking for more information about how to forward our own business. Yeah, and and uh, uh, you're in a specialized business, too. You need to be able to find your audience. 
What Mike is talking about is I spoke at the IPCPR convention, which is in essence a cigar retailers association convention about two years ago. And I got to meet so many cigar retailers and look at so many products and, you know, the newness of products on the market, the flavoring of products on the market. Uh, uh, it's, it's both an exciting and a challenging time, I think, in your business. It, so, it is. It is. We, uh, we fight on one end uh, all the negative perceptions and all the legislation. On the other end, we're always looking for that new exciting thing to put in front of our customers. You know, and, and it's interesting, and we, we look at cigars, and when I used to play in the cigar business, uh, uh, I used to think to myself, if I could create rituals around a cigar like we have around cocktails, for example, take the lime out of the Corona beer deal, and you think anybody will buy Corona beer, <laughs> right? So the ritual of putting right. a lime on that glass or on is drove the entire branding of the beer. So rituals, the salt on your hand when you take a tequila shot, the follow-up with the lime, Rituals sometimes can really have a powerful impact uh, 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 on the sale of products, right? It makes them more important, makes them more relevant. I've often thought, what kind of rituals could be created around a cigar experience? And when well, I look at a business the... like yours, tell me if I'm right. You have your base customers who come see you all the time. And you have people that wake up one day and decide they want to buy a cigar and then they come to you. But your challenge is to get people that might try a cigar to come try a cigar. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. We, we have uh, several different markets that we're, we're trying to expand. One is the new customer like that. The other yep. is to um, increase our reach to the markets we share with other shops. I think you would refer to it as intrusive. Yep. And a, a competitive intrusion is what we're referring to. So, so and what happens is the cigar case is popping up in a lot of places. So, you know, when you look at a business like cigars, there are people who are going to smoke them, people who might smoke them, and people who will never smoke them. So we, we don't focus on those that will never smoke them. We focus on those right. that, that, that will, and we put a lot of effort into those that might, because that's the difference between a single and a home run is to get the mites in there. So... What are the barriers, if we think about it, Mike, playing just together for a second, what are the barriers that a new customer has for trying a, a cigar? Well, one, they think it's too strong, right? Correct. They think, yeah, and we, they we've think had that, new customers come in and complain, oh, uh, my uncle gave me a cigar and it just made me sick. That's right. And my dad used to was, smoke Churchill's when I was a kid, and one day I went in the bushes in front of my house, I was about eight or nine, and I pulled out one of his Cuban uh, uh, Churchills, and I started puffing on that, made myself sick as a dog. And it took me uh. years to smoke a cigar after that. But the fact of the matter is they smoked the wrong cigar, and they smoked exactly. it in the wrong way. So have you ever done classes for beginners and looked at doing programs, educational and classes, where maybe they can do a little bourbon tasting and try some cigars? Uh, uh, well, have you ever tried fact, blending something like that? We, we have talked about doing a Cigar 101 night for beginners. Uh, we just haven't really pulled the trigger on that yet. Uh, but, in fact, a little later this month, we're doing a uh, cigar and bourbon pairing at one of the local uh, uh, B&Bs. That's great. Are you going to coupon them to come back to your store? I hadn't thought of it, but that's a great idea. I will snag that. Thank you. Okay, hold on. I'm going to bust you here, Mike. Here we go. Anytime you do anything, there's got to be a call to action, right? 
You do a tasting right. event. There must be a call to action that you communicate to them. Come to my store with this and get a blank. That's a call to action. Come to my store and get a, you know, a, a, a one of these or get an extra. A call to action. So everything we do must have a call to action. So if you said we're going to create a, a cigar education class for people who think they might like cigars but aren't sure. Come. You'll taste some bourbon. You'll taste some cigars. Uh, uh, uh. And we might even have a special customize your own dip cigar uh, uh, and have them dip their own cigar or something that they go home with, the signature cigar, which I've played with before. Right. What if you could create an event like that every Tuesday night that people would come to? As a matter of fact, uh, the fellow that owns the bar up the street from me, who has some background in cigars, has offered to get together with us and do, for example, a, a cognac tasting. Oh, cognac works great with cigars. Rum works great with cigars. Uh, uh, but, you know, you can have some fun. Uh, we've worked with some cigar retailers and had them do some dipping, where I can actually dip my own cigar in something that I choose. So we'll also create something like, there. I say, a vanilla cognac, put a little vanilla in cognac and have them dip their own cigar in a cognac. It's their own signature cigar. So we've played around with interactive ways to get people to interact with cigars in fun ways before they light them up to personalize it and make it their own. So if you're going to do this in his bar, you should do it on a regular basis every other Tuesday or every Tuesday or the first Tuesday of every month. There should always uh -huh. be some type of bounce back, right, something actionable. If you enjoyed this bourbon, come on into my place on next Thursday night and you get another glass of bourbon and – you get a second cigar if you buy one. So yeah, how do you create that bounce back? How do you move the traffic back and forth? And the other thing that you should do is if you're going to have a relationship with this bar, ask them if you can leave coupons on the bar or at the door or on this bulletin board you can pull off, offering people a discount on their first cigar. Uh, uh, and I think you can break down some barriers that way. How do you increase the spend when people come to your store? If I come to your store and say I'm going to buy a cigar and I'm going to spend 12 bucks on it or $8 on it or $2 on it, what do you do to upsell people, Mike? Well, the, the first thing is I find out what your personal taste is. I'll show you the cigar you're looking for, and then I'll show you some upgraded cigars that would be actually an improvement over what you're smoking, or I think they are. Years ago... I did a lot of work for Ritz-Carlton Hotels, and years ago we worked on a property, I don't need to mention the name, but we put together a wine list, and the premise was that wine is intimidating the beginners. They don't know which wines are light, heavy, flavorful, this, that. They don't understand them. They can't pronounce half the names of the wines. So there's a real discomfort in most Americans in an upscale restaurant with a wine list. So what did the restaurant do? So they put this sophisticated wine list in. They have the sommelier come up to your table. Mike, and he's standing up, and you're sitting down, and he stares down at you and intimidates you and asks you what wine you would like. And then when you tell him you don't know, he makes you feel like an idiot by advising you. So we turned around, and we said, let's make wine approachable. Let's take a wine list, and let's cut it up into wines that are great before dinner, with, after. Let's create categories in the way we did it and see how it works. I then did it with a humidor about a year later, this is a couple years ago. Or I created signage over sections of the humidor so that there was a section for lighter cigars. So if I was a beginner, a first-timer, and I walked into your humidor, there was a certain comfort I had in that. I could go to the left side where the lighter cigars were, and I knew that I wasn't making a fool of myself if I picked one of those out. 
I could go to an area where there's more flavorful cigars. Or have you ever thought of doing anything like that and creating a display for new customers or creating more of an approachability within the humidor? Um, I, I actually do get asked that question on a regular basis. Uh, what I need to do actually is tag the displays. Uh, I tend to group everything by brand so it's easier for me to find. But you could put color tags on the box, right? A yellow tag is a lighter cigar. A blue tag is a heavier cigar. Is there a way that you could merchandise your cigars in a friendlier fashion for people who don't want to be embarrassed because I don't want to go in and tell you I don't know what I'm doing and then have you show me what I'm doing in front of people? I don't like that. I don't want to get embarrassed. I want to walk in and know that if I look at yellow tags, I'm, I'm safe. If I look at blue, I'm safe. Do you think that would help your business? Um. You know, I think it would. I will tell you, though, that, that I work very hard at making sure that customers that come in get as much personal attention as possible. And the ones that come in and say, this is my first time, I don't know anything about it, I tell them, don't worry about it. This is my job to find what you want. What if I told you I don't want you to do that for me? What if I told you I don't want to be, I don't want you talking to me in front of people. I don't want to really deal with that. I'm not looking to develop a relationship with you. I want to go in. I want to buy a cigar. I want to know I'm buying the right cigar, and I want to get out of there. Does that bother you? And that it it bothers me only in that the customer is left on their own trying to figure it out. Which just like the wine list, there's a lot of stuff there for somebody that doesn't know what they're doing to be confused with. So, so what happens if I walk into your humidor help. and you're helping somebody else? Being a one-man show here, you're kind of stuck waiting for me. So wouldn't it be great if you could look at me and say, hi, you knew? Oh, great. You might want to look at some of the cigars with the yellow tags. They're a little lighter than some of the others, and I'll be right with you. Would that be helpful? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so there are barriers that you have to doing business with people. One is the discomfort of ignorance. People don't like to be ignorant. They don't like to be told that they're ignorant in front of other people. So sometimes I don't want to be educated by you if there's other people watching. I want to act like I know what I'm doing, not like I don't know what I'm doing. And as much as service is, is wonderful from an owner standpoint, sometimes it's embarrassing from the consumer standpoint. So I believe one of your barriers is to make your merchandising more friendly. I know what top shelf uh, uh, liquor is. I know what mid shelf is. I know what bar well liquor is. I know what gin is. I know what tequila is. I know what's heavier. I know what's lighter. There's a structure to a bar and a structure to a restaurant menu that cigar stores don't have. And I suggest right. you take a look at that. I bet it makes a big difference for those customers. Well, let me know how you do, Mike. Send us a note in a couple of weeks. Let us know how you do, okay? I sure will, John. Thank you. Best, best of luck. Mike, Mike was a little stubborn, though. He was a little stubborn. That's why I busted him a little at the end. <laughs> he says I'm good at this. He wasn't so good at it. I'm with you, John. I don't. I don't like to go into places and feel overwhelmed by someone telling me what I want. I just want to point it to me, and I can go figure it out for myself. Yeah, imagine there's four other people standing in the humidor, and he's he's treating you like you're an idiot. Well, you know, this is a Churchill cigar, and this is a smaller cigar, and this is, you know, it, it, nobody wants that. No so, no. so sometimes ignorance is a barrier to sales. You don't know enough about it. You really don't want to be embarrassed because you don't know about it, so you don't buy it. Yeah. But if I could create an environment where you'd walk around and look yourself and interact with it on your own with some comfort, you just might buy it. Okay, let's go to uh, San Francisco, California. Rafael is on the line. He's He's got a class. He's taking hospitality and tourism, and he has a mm. couple of questions for you. Rafael, you on? Sure. Yeah, I'm right here. 
Hey, Raphael. How are you, buddy? I'm good, John. Nice talking to you. Same here. I always love talking to hospitality and tourism students. So, so what's going on? Hi, uh, I just have a few questions. Hopefully it won't take too long. Uh, my first question is that I recall you saying you wanted to be a firefighter and an ar- architect when you were a kid. Is that correct? Uh, when I was very young, yes, I did. Yeah, and you grew up to be a drummer, and you worked at venues like the Troubadour. Now, why did you decide to become a professional in the hospitality industry when you could have been anything else? You know, that's a great question, Raphael, and I'd love to tell you that I planned it this way. I was playing music, and my bands was playing at the Troubadour and the Roxy and, and uh, a number of the other venues in Los Angeles. Another one was uh, back then Gazzari's, even the Starwood. There was a number of venues we played at. And one day, I was offered an opportunity to run the Troubadour. The owner of the club really just literally threw the keys at me and said, yeah, you can run it. So I was, in, I was suddenly in a nightclub business. But years before, when I was in college, I had tended bar a little bit, Raphael, and I really enjoyed the people and the interaction, and, and I really like to make people smile. It really brings pleasure to me. I love to give people a great night and, and a wonderful experience. It's something that's very rewarding to me. So when I was given the keys to the Troubadour, Raphael, I just fell in love with the business, and, and I've never left it. And I've been in it now for 35 years. Uh, I'm very close to UNLV, which is currently the number one hotel school in the country. And I, I work with educational programs with the, uni- uh, with the university, work with the students at the university. And, and buddy, I think you're getting into the greatest industry in the world. To think that our job is to make people smile every day. Not bad, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's good to hear because I want to do the same too. Yep. So, you know, it's all about caring about people and compassion and understanding that, you know, they're counting on us, whether it's their daughter's wedding, which is a big responsibility, or, you know, a family event or a hotel stay. or They chose us. And, you know, when they choose our restaurants and our bars and our hotels and our catering facilities, it's an honor. And coming through for them has always been a very, very rewarding thing for me. Uh, last one. Uh, let's go to Sean in Oklahoma, who is considering starting a design agency uh, catered to food and beverage, but wants to know if he needs experience before jumping in headfirst. Sure. Hey, Sean. Hey, John. How are you doing? Good. Nice to talk to you. So you have a designer background. What kind of design? Yes, a, a facility design, graphic design? Yes, sir. I have a major in graphic design from Oklahoma State University. Oh, so, so, so you are a serious, uh, well-trained graphic designer. You know, people yes, like you must get so frustrated when people that don't have the degree that you have call themselves designers. Because oh, I absolutely. meet people all the time that call themselves graphic designers because they know how to use a computer program. But you are truly a professional at this. I know. It's funny. All my friends give me shit about it. They always say, are you grab-assing again? That's what they call it. Or they say, what are you drawing right now? They, they like to joke around about it. But, yeah, it's all fun games. But, yeah, it really, it, there's a lot to it than a lot of people think. So, yeah, it's definitely my passion. So there's positioning and branding and imagery and demographic targeting and brand associations and brand stories. And these are all yes, the sir. things that you've been trained in that that kid on a computer hasn't been. And exactly, and I got, I was fortunate enough to really get also a marketing standpoint from it because my, actually my first job out of college was 
as a marketing director in a small town for a chain of convenience stores and a few restaurants that the company owns. So I was very fortunate to force myself to learn a lot of marketing along with it so I can really implement that with design. Well, I think that somehow, somewhere, your slogan should be something along the lines of don't hire somebody who calls themselves a graphic designer because they have a computer. Right. Use a professional. Uh, uh, you know, I think that point of difference is really important, Sean, for you. And if you're going to start Absolutely. your company, you have the background to do it. You've been professionally trained to do this. So if I came to you right. and said to you, I'm opening an Asian restaurant in San Francisco, could you do your homework and put together a, a uh, identification package for me? Absolutely. If I called you the next week and told you I was opening an Italian restaurant in Miami, could you do that package for me? Absolutely, without a doubt. What, what if I told you I was opening a steakhouse in Bermuda? <laughs> could you do that for me, too? It might take a little extra research, but I would make it work. Of course you would. So my point is you are ready to do this, aren't you? Yes, sir. So now what you and need to do is you got to put forth your mission. What you want to do is you want to use your education and your knowledge to take graphic design to the next level for these companies. You want to prove right. that experience matters. Education matters, and it creates a depth of branding and brand communications that nobody else could achieve without your degree. And right. I would position and my I, company that kind of a way, and uh, I would really consider uh, uh, breaking into this business, and I would do it soon, Sean, and let me tell you why, then I'll let you ask me your other question. Last year, about 740,000 new businesses opened in America uh, uh, in a year. Last quarter, quarter, 879,000 new businesses opened across America. This is boomtown. Think of how many of them need logos and letterheads and graphic identification packages and email right. signatures all and websites. So this is boomtown for you right now. So I would jump on that bad wagon. I would try to figure out who has new businesses. Are there CPAs in towns that you can align with? who are people when they sure. start a new business, often they go to a CPA. Find eight or ten of those guys that you could partner up with. Go to a couple of construction companies that build restaurants and new businesses and interiors in town. They have contracts for new companies coming into town. There's another service that you can get that'll tell you anytime a business files for a new phone number or a business license, you can be notified. So it's easy to find the leads if you look at the businesses that are involved with business startups and get involved with them as relationships, you can find the leads. You have the advantage in education. You have a story to tell about depth and quality. Buddy, go to it. Absolutely. My only concern was, I, even though I've worked with a few different restaurant groups, I've never actually worked in a legitimate ad agency. And I know sometimes... Uh, jobs on LinkedIn say they require five years of experience in an agency, stuff like that. I wasn't sure. I mean, I do freelance work on the side for people, and I didn't know if I actually need a couple years of experience in an agency to really start my own down the road. I don't believe you do, but what you do need is a little portfolio of the work that you've done so you can show people how good you are. Because to Excellent. me, Absolutely. You know, I'm sitting across, I'm looking through the glass at my producer here in my company, who's 23 years old. His name is Corey. He's going to smile. He's looking back at me. And I always tell him he's 23 going on 40. You see, he grew up with his, <laughs> his, his dining room was an editing bay. His father's in the business. 
So I don't need him to have a college degree to be great at what he does. His skills is what matters to me. Show people why they want you. Show them your work. Talk about your depth of education. Those years with the agency don't mean shit, to be honest with you, Sean. Awesome. (laughs) That's great to hear. So go for it. You have a great story to tell. But do this, buddy. Look at all these companies you can align with that are involved in new businesses uh, and go to it. This is a great time. And I'd love to hear from you in a few weeks and hear how you're doing. Absolutely. No problem. Great, Sean. Take care, buddy. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for another episode of No Excuses. Next week's a good one, buddy. I got Jordan Harbinger on. Jordan is an amazing story. He was a hacker who used to hack into cell phone signals and listens to his neighbor's phone calls. And then through his hacking, this is when he's 14, 15 years old. Then through his hacking, he started hacking transactions. Now he's 15 years old. The FBI knocks on his door, brings him in, and he now starts to work with the FBI as a programming and hacking expert. It's an incredible story, Casey. So Jordan will be with us next week. Now he runs one of the most successful self, self-help podcasts in the country. So don't miss next week's episode. And hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Go to podcastone.com, Podcast One app, and you'll get your new subscription every Tuesday. And we love comments, don't we, Casey? Yeah. Leave us great comments. And if you'd like to be on my podcast, just send me an email to podcast at johntaffer.com podcast at johntaffer.com we'll talk to you next week i'm out of here thanks for listening to no excuses with john taffer on podcast one download new episodes every tuesday here on podcast one.com the podcast one app and at apple podcasts make sure to rate and review 